five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. You're listening to Tabletop and Beyond with your host, Justin. But before we get started, how was your geek week? And co-hosts, Dan and Jason. You have to be willing to let the dice help you tell the story. Okay, look, this year, I'm going to stop mispronouncing words. Join us as we cover board games to war games and beyond. Welcome back to Tabletop and Beyond. I am your host, Justin. We've got a full crew today. Welcome back, boys. Hey, everybody. Good evening. As I was saying before, you guys missed a really good show with Mike Mason last time, but you all had good excuses, so I'll let it slide this time. Yep. Mea culpa. <laughs> uh, we got a good show for everybody today. We are talking about the everlasting threat, which, uh, what does that mean? Well, we'll get to it later in the show. But uh, I'm excited to, to talk about it. Uh, but first, how was your Geek Week? Jason, let's start with you. Okay, I had a fun Geek Week. I, mine was a video game related. So I played a game called uh, Tainted Grail Conquest. It's on uh, Games Pass. Most of the games we talk about here, I play them from Games Pass. But it's a fun rogue um, card game. It's But it's not really a card game. It's more one of those, like... Um, it's kind of a, a dungeon, a random dungeon rogue game where you go out into kind of the wildlands from your little village. Um, and every time you go out, the monsters are kind of spread out differently. And when you have encounters, you pull from a deck of cards that you're building to use abilities, like to block or to, you know, backstab or, or certain things. So, But it's a, th- it's a 3D, it's not a card it's not a, a video game card game. It's an actual, like, th- you know, 3D dungeon there. It's just you're pulling from cards that are in front of you that you play. So there's several games that are like that out there right now. This one was really fun um, because it has some really cool combos with the cards. And you have different um, fantasy classes you can pick your character to be. Um, and it really is um, it really is kind of roguish in the sense that every time you... Like when you die, you are your game is wiped completely, except for a few things that you kind of unlock along the way. Like as as you play the game, you'll unlock special cards, and then the next time you start the game, you don't start with those cards in your deck, but you can find those cards quickly when you play the game, when you get into the dungeon early on. Oh. So you can rebuild your deck really quickly. So as you play the game, you start to get your your character still starts from square one. But you can build your deck to be powerful a lot faster, so it helps you kind of get a little bit further and a little bit further through every part of the dungeon. Um, and uh, so I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, there's like I don't know, there's like uh, ten r- classes. I only played two of them. Um, it's and uh, it has leaderboards, so every time you do a playthrough, it kind of saves your score, and you can compare it to you know people online and their friends score so I, I recommend it if you it is not a super fast paced game you're going to spend a lot of time looking at your card and thinking which card because you only play a certain a limited number of cards every round and you're kind of trying to think about what's going to happen next round you're looking at the enemies in front of you you can't see their cards obviously 
um, and you're trying to gauge like what's the most effective thing too. So if you like that kind of thought tactical play, uh, highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. And if you have Games Pass, it's basically free for you. So I would shoot it up. Nice. I was just uh, looking up a little video of it. It looks really cool. Yeah, it's fun. And um, like all games, you know, you don't even have to install it. You can play it through the cloud streaming now, which I think everybody who has Games Pass has access to. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's how I played it uh, most of the time. And actually what was really cool about Games Pass, right, is with the cloud is that all of your game is synced to the cloud too. So like I played it on my Xbox and we went on vacation. And while we were on vacation, I just pulled it up on my phone and I continued playing on my phone. Uh, So really, really cool, really powerful. At some point, you know, I think... I think we're seeing a movement that, uh, with Microsoft at least, that I think in the future, uh, I think we're going to be game streaming through set-top boxes and smart TVs. And the Xbox consoles themselves will be reserved for like the elitists who still want to buy those. Uh, I already got a notification from Microsoft saying that I can stream my cloud games pass to my Samsung TV with a controller oh, now. Yeah. I, I saw that too. I was like, holy smokes. That I, I is think, pretty cool. I think Microsoft is really making some, some strides here, man. I mean, can you imagine, you know, get a, get a smart TV with Bluetooth, sync up a wireless controller to it, and then just stream your Games Pass service? I mean, you're not paying the, you know, four to $500 every couple of years on a console, but you're paying fourteen ninety nine a month. Like, that seems like... That seems like the money cow that Microsoft's really going for right now. Yeah, and it gets you out of buying that piece of hardware every X number of years. Yeah. You know, hardware shortages, you know, yep. supply chain, the cost, it's it's obsolete the day you plug it in in your house. Yeah. You know, um, so thin client, what, what do you call that when you have a, is it thin client? It's a thin client. client. Yep, it thin, it's thin client. client. So yeah. um, essentially... There's a Linux machine inside your Samsung TV, and Microsoft is like, let's talk to that. Let's send that. Let's send an image over. The, the trick is latency, right, for video games? Yeah, and I will say, you know, uh, th- Microsoft's not the first person to do this. There have been several company startups that have started and bankrupted themselves over the years uh, because the infrastructure hasn't been there to support live.com was, uh, I'm sure that's been used for lots of things, but live.com was the name of a startup company that tried this back before, oh gosh, probably almost 20 years ago, um, they were trying this. And it was really when, you know, everybody was on cable modems and we were just start, like just starting to get cable modems move off of dial-ups and stuff. So I think at this point in time, the infrastructure is out there to support this type of latency. I don't even notice, like, I'll tell you this, I can't play first person shooter games very well over it like i played trey like yeah. play like serious sam and that yeah. game like it kind of plays okay but you definitely see that they're cutting back um like you know the quality of the video stream to uh i don't know maybe to prioritize the quality of service but with games like uh tainted grail where it's like just a tactical you know thought playing game i don't need that latency and it plays very well for those kind of games are we going to see first person shooters i think potentially as we start to see you know uh better infrastructure reach the masses uh but i mean fortnite uh call of duty they're already out there um for mobile devices and things like that well but they install directly on the mobile device that's true yeah so So, running yeah Go if ahead. I'm doing, if I'm pulling down 400, 400 
even over Wi-Fi in my house, and I'm uploading around 200. Shouldn't that be fast enough? Well, it's not about the it's not about your throughput. It's about your latency. The right? latency, right? It's how long it takes for that one and zero to get to the server in some data center somewhere, and then come yeah. all the way back. It's like you can you can push you know tw- ten f- up to fifty megabits through a satellite, but um, it takes time for the speed of light to travel up to the satellite and come down. So you'll get right. the same throughput, but your latency, which is fine if you're browsing the web, it just takes. A, f- a little tiny bit longer for the web page to first pop or even to stream videos it's just taking a little bit longer for that stream to kick into gear but when you're playing a game that's interacting with other players online like you need that twitch reflex for like something call of duty mm-hmm. you can't afford you know a half second delay or a quarter second delay which you get with a geo satellite by the way you can't afford a, g- a quarter second delay because you'll be dead the other guy will already have you in his crosshairs before you even come around the corner Right, so you could see this kind of a bifurcation in gaming where people yep. that are going to play, you know, super low late, you know, low latency, AAA titles, whatever, are going to need consoles and the whole traditional model where every other kind of creative game thing that you can think of where there's a half a second to think in between every move. Yeah. And then you've got more creative people. It becomes cheaper to roll out those games and the game like the game ecosystem expands. Like I think I kind of kind of caught up with, you know, the Series X and the Games Pass. And I was just blown away at the different type types of games that, that there's different creativities out there that are really fun and cool. Yeah. And so I, I think when you take that piece of hardware out of the way for somebody to get into it, um, I, I, I think, you know, this good things can happen in the future. More people will be playing more interesting things. For sure. Boy, that was a tangent. I'm going to end my Geek Week right there and pass the ball back to you, Justin. That was a good talk. <laughs> Dan, how was your Geek Week? Good. I uh, GM'd for a second time on our West Marches group campaign with multiple play, lots of players and multiple GMs. And uh, Jay played in that session. Yeah, it was um, fun. You know, uh, the trick is not knowing exactly who's going to show up. That's kind of different. Um, Not knowing the skill set, right, that's going to show up. You might have two pilots and a mechanic and only one guy who can shoot, right? That's weird as a GM. And then what I did is I didn't plan one mission. I planned 10 missions and I posted them all. And somebody said, let's do this one. And I did that one. Not knowing if it was going to be a good fit for the group. Not knowing you know, there being a lot of, you know, what, what as a GM, it required a lot more improvisation and just kind of rolling with the punches. Um, so, but it was good and it's fun and flexible. I, I wonder, let, I mean, let me ask you, like, if the session wasn't a good fit for the people, is, is there some fun still had to be had in that? Well, that's the thing, is that you need to blow up all your rails. I mean, you have to run RPGs, sandboxy, Mad Max style. Mm-hmm. You can't have this always leads to this, which always leads to this, which always leads to that. You can't do it that way. Basically, if you just know what happened and why things are happening, what happened before the players even started on their admission, and who's incentivized to do what, you should probably be okay mm-hmm. without coming up with, you know combat one and social encounter two mm-hmm. uh, it's all the same toolkit that you need to run a sandbox rpg it's just 
you're not going to be able to to go find the rails and use them as if it, it they become much more obvious that you're putting everybody on rails if if you choose to do that because it's like so why are we having space combat when no one in the group can fly a ship or shoot a gun uh, right 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 you know and sense. so yep. don't you know throw just don't don't think linearly you know you've got to you've got to mind map it draw everything out in two dimensions and see how you can get from A to B by hopping to C to F to E to Z and then then back to B. So that's my two cents there. Nice, nice. Um, so that leads into uh, uh, my other Geek Week, which is the, the light cut topic of GM compensation. And I have two angles to hit it. The first angle is we had a pretty decent discussion about, well, if we're doing this West Marches thing and if all the GMs also have player characters that play every now and then, why can't they get XP when you're GMing? And I thought, and I, at first, the old school gamer in me was like, no, that breaks the social contract of a role-playing game. Why would we do that? And then you think about it, you're like, okay, well, that's because you have one guy who's deciding to run one story or one campaign with his group, you know, or her group, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the traditional model that the GM gets the benefit of storytelling and the players get the benefit of playing the game and, and getting XP. Well, the West Marches thing kind of blows that up a little bit because you're not the next mission may have absolutely nothing to do with the last mission. And so we're going to try out letting... If, if a GM has a character and XP was handed out that mission, even though that player wasn't on the mission, that, that character... Could have been off doing things to get XP. So we'll see how it goes. Um, if people get annoyed with it, um, then uh, we'll, we'll roll it back. But we're kind of blowing up the traditional RPG group model. So what, why should we stick with all of these other rules that, that Gary Gygax came up with in 78? Right, um, right. So um, the other compensation thing is I found out that one of my first GMs from when I was a teenager... Uh, is now a professional GM. Oh, wow. In the Las Vegas area. So he's, you know, running five or six or seven different games. He's on Roll20, and he's have game will travel in that geographic area. And he's charging uh, for a Roll20 session $15 a person. Interesting. Uh, per session, huh? Yeah, for uh, yeah for a three to four hour session. Yeah, that makes sense. It's, it's not. You think so? Not, Oh, 15, dude, 15 bucks for four hours of a game? It's cheaper than the movies. It's yeah, cheaper than true. movies and a bag of popcorn. It is totally cheaper than movies. It's that's cheaper true. than going to the arcade and putting a dollar into an arcade for a 30-second play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I guess inflation got me, guys. Sorry. I think I think the problem <laughs> is is that we're, you know, the most of us, we're so used to just finding a friend and getting together and doing it for free in a bag of chips that you bring you know, the concept of, I found this before, the concept of a professional GM is a little bit obscure to a lot of us because we're so used to it just being a hobby thing that friends get together and play. Right. Yeah, I could see, let's say if I moved to Timbuktu and retired in a small town somewhere, I would not assume that I would be able to form a, a really thriving, you know, community of gamers that we have here in our area. Um, I wouldn't expect that as possible. So yeah, I might, you know, it might, 
If I'm retired, sure, I'll throw 15 bucks at a, at a game once in a while. It doesn't seem yeah. too too far off. But, no, not at all. Um, but it was fun to see the guy who was 16 and I was 12 or 13 and we were all in his session together. He's still, still at it all awesome. these years later. So, yeah, and, and once again, and that goes to the same theme, which is let's bust open the model of why do we keep doing things the way that Gary Gygax thought we should do them in 1978 there's no reason that we have to always use the same paradigm over and over again if everybody agrees yep i would agree i would agree with that it's interesting that's my geek week very good very good uh let's see for my geek week uh beginning of july i didn't do a geek week with uh mike mason just because we oh no i did do a geek week i I talked about this a little bit but i want to get into it a little bit more um, I started up with the Storytelling Collective, writing my own um, RPG that I am going to publish. I chose the Call of Cthulhu path. That um, So I'm writing a Call of Cthulhu n- mission or adventure right now. Uh, I'm woefully behind on it. This <laughs> explains why of... you haven't been so active on Discord. Uh, well, I'm not that active on Discord because I can't get it at work. So. <laughs> That's part of it. Um, That's a barrier. Yes, exactly. But um, the other the other part is that I was at youth camp, and then rugby like has been dominating my life. And but youth camp is over as of last week, and rugby is over as of next Saturday. So um, I'm going to be banging away on this storytelling storytelling collective and and uh, knocking my adventure out. I've already got a uh, an adventure. It's a um, a an adventure that centers around a mine in 1870s Virginia City. So, uh, Nevada, Virginia City, Nevada. Oh, I'm familiar. So, I'm from, yeah. this is the one thing we have in common. That's right. So, uh, can I'm there very be, excited. Can there be singing of the Nevada song? Home means Nevada. Home means home the hills. Means the hills. Home yeah, we know. Means, most people don't know this, but all the kids who grew up in Nevada have to learn the Nevada State song. Yeah, and you can run into somebody and sing the song with them, and everybody knows those like three, three, three bars, and then it ends. But we all do. Do people do kids that grow up in Nevada are they also taught that the Nevada flag can um, also be flown at the same height as the federal flag? <laughs> that would be other states in the union. No, 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 no. We're battle born. We're we, we're battle born. We we're a union state, which is why That's we're right. a deep navy blue. We're, a, we're we were founded by uh, Abraham Lincoln to get three or four extra electoral votes at the last second. <laughs> <laughs> and, and all the silver that was coming and out. And all of the silver mines. that was coming yeah. out of there. Yeah. He needed were, to pay for were, some guns. Bad. There were people in Utah. There was silver in Nevada. Nevada got statehood way earlier. <laughs> way earlier. Way earlier. Yeah. Anyway, sorry to derail you. You got me on so, my Nevada thing. No, it's good. I, and I mean, it's one of those things where it's like I was thinking about um, adventures. In fact, I sent Jason like 10 different plot hooks that I had kind of come up with. And uh, between he and uh, John Truss, like we kind of narrowed down onto this mine one. And um, what's cool about it is I'm pulling from a lot of like my childhood. So stuff I know, right, uh, that I learned about. Uh, Virginia City so it it almost writes very easily because it's not like I'm making up the world the world is like some somewhere where I have actually been and I have actually seen so um, you know like I can talk about the bucket of blood saloon 
that's there and uh you know talk about some of the mines and what they were like because i have been in some of them so it's kind of cool you may think this is lame but i did the exact same thing for one of my star wars campaigns i and that sounds ridiculous but i was the only one in the group i was the gm i was the only one in the group who'd been to galaxy's edge oh nice and so i've been there actually so I knew the names of all the animatronic people and the names of everybody who owned all these things and how far away everything was. They thought it was immersive storytelling. No, it was me being a tourist. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, the other thing that I did for my Geek Week was that I got to play the only copy of Darkest Dungeon in North America. Now, for, for four weeks, like in four weeks, it won't yeah. be the only copy. <laughs> well, actually, it will be. It will be. Oh, they're not going to the Gen Con. It's not coming out of Gen Con. No. So so for those that are like, wait a minute, I thought Darkest Dungeon was a video game. Yes, it is. But it was turned into a tabletop game by Mythic Games and uh, Lincoln Tidwell, who's been on the show a couple of times. He um, is going to be demoing it at Gen Con. And so they will have the demo there, but it, the game does not ship until I think next year. So um, maybe later this year, but I think it's actually early next year. So I've played the game. It is amazing. Um, we've got time that we're going to play it again this week. Um, so it's going to be a lot of fun. And if you're going to Gen Con, check it out at the Mythic Games booth. It's a, it's a lot of fun. So. See, this is your opportunity to like go on the boards and like write your opinion down and be like an opinion maker on it because I, you're, I think you're ahead of the you're true. ahead of the ball game. Like if, you could update the tabletop and beyond website with like a review and everybody would be like, "Oh, somebody's playing this." It's true. However, there may be a moratorium on me putting out a review. Um, I, it's not like they had me sign an NDA or anything, but out of respect for Lincoln. I haven't like posted anything because he's like, don't share anything about this yet, you know, because he's got like the only copy and he's sharing it with me. So, you know, um, I, I like don't think I think there's a gag order on me <laughs> posting a review. You have a gag order? <laughs> Bummer. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Internet scoop, man. You've got your moment. Take it. <laughs> yeah. Then I'll never see another like pre-advanced copy ever again. Yeah. But you drive traffic to the site. You get more eyeballs then you get more advanced copies. I'll shut up now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it is a it is a blast. Uh, I I didn't back it. Um, I meant to back it and even do a late order, but I just never did. And um, now I'm wishing that I did. It comes with a ton of miniatures, and they're all amazing looking, like really really cool uh, miniatures. So Lincoln um, has this uh, way of making us feel guilty for not backing things. Uh, without know. doing it on purpose, right? I know, I know. <laughs> he He's does. like, it's so awesome. I got all this really cool stuff. You backed it, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, uh, <laughs> I was I was gonna, and then I, I missed the well, deadline. Well, if I'm not mistaken, we love Lincoln, but he has a very large collection of unplayed stuff in his well and basement. we and we you know we balance things like if five of we'll post a link we'll say look at this awesome new board game on kickstarter and all of us will be like yeah it looks really cool and then someone will be like i did it and i'm like okay i guess we don't have to right right because we'll just play yeah, it when yeah, you get yeah. it yeah but we spread it so we'll get so we'll get something else right? well lincoln lincoln usually backs stuff and then he'll get a copy from when he um does gen con as well 
So they 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 pay him in board games. So he usually yeah. gets a bunch of copies of their board games. So he has like two copies of like every game that they have. So which he's kind of a hoarder. He's a self <laughs> self-proclaimed hoarder in board games. So Hey Lincoln, we love you. We want to play yeah. more of your stuff. I tell him that all the time. This is not news. <laughs> but speaking of news, Oh, is it time? Oh man, it's I know that so was a long. quick that was a quick segue. You totally snuck up on me. I did. Welcome again to Tabletop and Beyond News. I felt good. That was I'm good. Not gonna lie, that felt good. It's been a while. It's been too long. Uh, yeah. So. Lots of great, interesting news. Now, you guys realize that I'm leaving a lot on the cutting room floor because the the weeks up to Gen Con, everybody's doing all of their stuff. Mm-hmm. So as we get closer and closer to Gen Con, the news is just going to, like, saturate. Um, and so, But we're not going to spend the whole time talking about news because that would drive our listeners crazy. But um, a really important uh, piece of news, one of the biggest pieces of news that's going on in the uh, tabletop industry is Roll20, the most popular virtual tabletop gaming platform, and One Bookshelf, the premier online vendor for tabletop gaming industry, announced today that they are coming together in a joint venture. Now, One Bookshelf does drive through RPG. Yep. And the DMs Guild, they're a big deal in the da- pay money, download a PDF role-playing game content. The press release says the deal empowers players to manage content across platforms for nearly any tabletop game, connect more easily with other players, and step into games immediately all in one place. So this is a pretty big merger when it comes to kind of the vertical integration of the digital RPG experience. Once again, breaking traditional models of Write a game, print thousands of copies, send it to a distributor, dis- distributor send it to game stores, gamers buy it. This is the exact opposite of that. This is a 21st century approach to RPGs. That's awesome. I wonder if this is kind of like their response to D&D Beyond, in a sense, right? Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily directly c- compete with D&D Beyond because there's things you can do on Roll20 you can't do on D&D and Beyond. And there's tons of player content that you can buy that doesn't... I know Wizards of the Coast has stuff on, on uh, drive-thru RPG as well as independent publishers. So I think it's complimentary, in my opinion. And what yeah. do I know? No, I th- I mean I I think so too cuz like you can play Shadow of the Demon Lord, you can play Call of Cthulhu, you can play Pathfinder, you can play I mean you could play uh, D&D on there if you want. Um you know, obviously D&D Beyond is just D&D. Uh it's a good integration, but um you want to branch out like it's interesting that Roll20 is uh really filling that filling that niche. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course the big sorting of virtual platforms for uh, these types of games. Uh, Roll20 has come out doing well. A few others have had to close up shop. So mm-hmm. um, there's that. So just FYI, if you get into Roll20 and there's stuff that you want to get access to 
through the one bookshelf offerings that's going to be available to you. The other thing it could do is it help independent publishers of adventures make a little more money. That's not too yeah. bad either. Yeah, definitely. Big bit. Ba- oh, yep. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. No, it's fine. Uh, yeah. Sorry. I'll shut up now. <laughs> no, I was just saying, I think it's great. It's great. Cool. <laughs> In our next news item, the nominees for the 2022 Any Awards were announced this week. So we won't go through all the nominations. There are dozens, but the Emmy Ennies are a big deal, and they happen as part of the Gen Con celebrations. You got Judges Spotlight winners, Best Adventure best aid accessory digital same not digital best cover art interior best cartography best electronic book best family game product best free game product best game best layout design best monster adversary best online content best organized play podcast where we didn't make it guys we didn't make the ennies uh part of it is because we didn't nominate we didn't nominate ourselves or get nominated, yeah. We'll get there. It's okay. Yeah. It, it'll take a while. We're, we're a slow burn. So production values, all kinds of other categories. I won't read them all. Please go to any, E-N-N-I-E-Awards.com. That's E-N-N-I-E-Awards.com. And go check out all the nominations. And you can vote if we get this podcast out quickly enough. You can actually vote. So if you see a product on here that you really like, um, you can uh, give it a vote and get it closer to a win. And I know the people in the industry really appreciate the innies. And they, when they win innies and when they're nominated, it, it really means a lot and helps their careers. It's a good thing. And uh, check it out. Yeah, we uh, had a great discussion with Mike Mason in our last uh, last episode and uh we didn't talk about the Ennies, even though they're about to come out but we did talk about some of the things that um that they have done that they were that they have been nominated for so like chaosium who obviously does call of cthulhu they've been nominated for the best aid accessory for some of the digital gamer props for the mask of nayar i want to say this wrong uh nayar lothotep oh my gosh so bad Yes, anyway. I see it right on there. Call uh, of Cthulhu yeah. 3D, digital gamer props, masks of Niar Lathotep. <laughs> I should learn how to say that because that's like a big, big name in that. Is it? Jason probably knows how to say it. So Hey, Mork oh, well. Borg is on there. We talked yeah. about Mork Borg. Yep. Yep. So there's good, some good stuff on there. So, um, yeah, just go check out the Ennies. Uh, what, what's great about the Ennies is, you know, you get uh, – uh, nominated uh there's kind of a vetting process for the nominations and then it's fan awarded like the fans get to go vote that's right so kind of like the baseball all-stars and you can even if you're not going to gen con you can get a feeling and influence what's big at gen con um through the ennies through voting yep. and through checking out all these new products and usually, when, when, I hate to say it, I vote, but a lot of times I learn about stuff by seeing what made the cut for uh, nominations for Emmy, Emmys. So. Yeah. Um, yep, it's exciting, and we'll report back on if there's any interesting winners. Um, here's yeah, another thing that you might find interesting as a person who's writing an adventure. 
The 2D20 system reference document is launching this month. The system reference document is a toolkit that will allow creators to craft their own 2D20 based role-playing games and supplements. It explains all the core mechanics of the system, enabling it so game designers can create exciting experiences around Modifius's cinematic high action and dramatic rule set. The SRD will be available as a downloadable PDF on the 20th of July, 2022. Now, this is the same system that Star Trek uses, right? It is. It yeah, is. Okay. So, so we all know how a D20 works. Somebody sets a difficulty, you roll a D20 and add your modifier. You compare and determine success or failure. A one or a tw- one is super bad, a 20 is super awesome. Um, on a 2D20 system, you have two stats and you add them together and then it's a roll low. So you may have one stat that is the equivalent of your presence and one stat that is the equivalent of like your daring. Are you gonna try to say something really fast to change the outcome instead of fighting a fight? You add those two numbers together and then you roll 2d20s and roll low and you count successes. There are other ways to buy additional d20s to get in uh, additional successes. If you roll a one, which is good in a 2d20 system, you can get an additional success. And of course, a 20 is much like in a 1d20 scenario, a bad thing. So long story short, it's kind of the reverse. You you figure out ways to spend resources to buy extra 20s to, to improve your odds and it's about rolling low. Now rolling low, you might think, oh, I never wanna play a rolling low game. Let me tell you, if you got a box of D20s and you've banished half of them for rolling low, get them out and play 2D20 system. <laughs> and if, you, if you're playing 2D20 system and one dice is just killing you constantly, set that one aside for D&D. It's gonna be useful. Um, you think I'm kidding, but my group actually does that now because I bought, I play Star Trek, uh, Klingon Empire. I have the Klingon dice with the Klingon symbol for the one, right? They're really cool. They're like yeah. red and black and they're very on theme. Those things pop 20s constantly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you're better D&D dice than Klingon dice. That's terrible. That's hilarious. But, uh, so anyway, um, Modifius has been doing a lot of great work, taking over a lot of IPs. They remind me of FFG back in the day when they were just rolling through and expanding and expanding. And so it's really kind of catching on. I remember when the system was launched with the Star Trek Adventures game when we were at Gen Con in 20, uh, I want to say 17 or 18. So I think it was 2017. So it's a cool thing. And um, it's, it's different. So you have like two pods, uh, you have like two groups of six stats and you match them to you and the GM figure out how to match them together, you know, to get to figure out what you should be rolling. Unlike like a stat that you're always trying to increase, you are trying to increase it because you're trying to roll low, but you're always pairing, you know, you have 12 stats and and you're trying to grab one from one side and one from the other and and come up with um, a number that gets you the most successes. Very cool. Yeah, so this is essentially the 2D20 version of Genesis, right? Where it's Mm an agnostic uh, setting rule set that uh, you can basically put any skin, any adventure, any world you want onto it um, if you like the rules. So I think it's cool. I wonder how much do you think it'll be uh, as a PDF? I think it'll be free. 
Really? Oh wow! I think okay. it'll be a free download, I, and, that, and that's the, my guess. And I, I yeah. if I'm mistaken, I apologize. That's fake news. Um, no, I think it'll be free, much like the one D, the the D twenty um, SRD is a system reference document. It's free right now. You can the one that Wizards of the Coast does for D twenty. Yeah. So to be quite honest, you can come up with your own IP right now. You can do. Uh, 1d20 version of it you can do a 2d20 version of it you can do genesis and then you can do um the one that goes with numerata numerala numerana what's the name of that system we we numenera numenera yeah so you can if you had your own cool ip you could you know tackle four systems and people could be playing your ip in the one that they like the most in this right. in the rule set they, they they're more comfortable in so Very that's good. kind of fun too. All right, that's the news, and I'm, and I'm Dennis Miller. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's uh, for all you kids out there. That's an old school reference. Yeah, I'm getting into old Saturday. I'm listening to Fly in the Wall podcast with uh, Dana Carvey and David Spade, and they roll old school with uh, the old uh, Saturday Night Live references. So. Nice. They're all top of mind for me right now. Apologies. Very good. Well, as we promised earlier in the show, we were going to talk about the ever-present threat in games and what does that mean. So we talked about this, Jason, I think a little bit in our Shadow of the Demon Lord mm -hmm. episode yeah. way back when. But as I was uh, prepping through this storytelling collective, writing my Call of Cthulhu adventure, this came up as it talked about writing villains and how... You know, not only do you need a um, a compelling villain in your story, but you need an ever-present threat in the background to give that flavor. So, uh, what does this mean? What is an ever-present threat in games? Well, it's uh, you know, it's something that's. I think at one point we talked about how it was in the background. I don't know if it needs to necessarily be in the background, but. It's something that's larger than the players can take care of um, in uh, in a normal in a normal adventure. Um, some systems make it this very large, overarching thing the players will never be able to take care of. An example right. is the uh, probably the void in Shadow of the Demon Lord. I don't think I, well, homebrews you could do whatever you want. I don't think there was really an intention for us to ever fix the crack in the world that is letting the void seep through. That's just happening, and it's a doomed, it's a doomed, uh, doomed place to be. But it's an overarching threat that's constantly causing um, problems uh, that, or it, maybe not causing problems the players have to deal with, but it's it's causing an oppression that is leading towards issues that are affecting the players the players lives it doesn't and you know what? here's right. a thought i think we tend to think of it as it's always kind of an evil or a bad thing i don't know if it necessarily has to be but it's just it's just something that's there that is having an effect on the world that is driving into the experience that the players are having and in one sense can unify the players together towards a common objective to deal with it yeah i think um you actually bring up a really interesting point that it doesn't have to be evil right uh but it does have to bring conflict uh because conflict is what drives stories conflict is what brings you know stress conflict is what um 
makes things interesting in storytelling, right? Without conflict, it's just vanilla, vanilla ice cream, right, out there. Like, it's yeah. just really, really boring. So well, you that, need yeah, – yeah, go ahead. Go, I was going to say, so you need conflict to drive it forward. So the ever-present threat may not be evil, um, but it needs to be a source of potential conflict. And it's conflict between – not necessarily between players. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be player conflict. In fact, it shouldn't. That shouldn't be what what drives player conflict. That if that you're going to have player conflict in your games, it should be something else that's causing that probably. But it's conflict between, um, you know, uh, maybe the group, the player group, and the game setting itself or the world. Is that what you mean? Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, the conflict it comes from. You kind of touched on this, in my opinion, that the the uh, conflict comes from when it, the the ever present threat is out there, but things bubble up that the players have to kind of take care of, mm-hmm. right? That that are there. Um, you mentioned the demon lord, the void, right? Like because there's corruption seeping into the world, corruption is like popping up here or there. Uh, I think uh, you know I got Call of Cthulhu on the brain now, but the fact is, is like the elder gods. <laughs> are this constant great threat that are out there and very rarely will your adventurers ever deal with the elder gods yet the threat of him is out there because there's all these cultists running around trying to summon them right so mm-hmm. they're the dealing threat... with the influence of them exactly exactly so um yeah like what are some other some other examples that we can think of that like there's this constant threat that's out there that you know cause conflict that cause the you know the infl or that are that that drive influence to other people i guess you know i think dan put um one on our list here that's probably very near and dear to his heart the empire the empire is near and dear to my heart <laughs> oh star you sit you <laughs> you sit you we know deep down no 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 it's really the empire because well for most of it you know, if you're playing during that time period, it's like this thing that is just always underneath your feet. The empire, not specifically the emperor, but it's the empire that, you know, prevents everyone from living a prosperous life. Yeah. You or know? in my perspective, the uh, Jedi Order. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's have that debate. <laughs> so th- that being said... It's like, okay, well, you're going to go do that, but if you start shooting that up, a bunch of guys in white outfits are going to start asking questions. And you can see that in the movies. One of the problems with the Empire is that, you know, George Lucas defanged them after the uh, Ewoks danced, used their helmets as drums. Right. Um, (laughs) They they were a really cool bad guy up until that moment. Um, So sometimes it's hard to kind of, you know, give them the edge that they need. But if you're playing the game, you know, you can always outnumber the good guys with the Empire. The Empire always has a num- as a numbers advantage. And so that's really the problem. They're all over the place and there's too many of them. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting thing, right? So it's a numbers game. You're outnumbered and that's where conflict comes in, right? Because no matter where you go, um there's this threat that some stormtrooper could stumble onto your plans or something like that just because there's so gosh darn many of them out there 
uh, and there's, you know, always some you know, Im imperial bureaucrat that wants to make a name for himself that's happy to bring you guys in and make an example of you or whatever it is. And, right? and so, something like that can be a more tangible threat than mm -hmm. the void or the corruption seeking in, seeping into the world. You know, that's a little bit more abstract. So de yeah. depending on your kind of storytelling preference, something kind of very tangible like big gray triangle ship starts shooting at you, what do you do, is very different than, oh, cor corruption is seeping into the hearts of men. I mean, with that said, though, like the, I mean, you could, you could call like a Darth Vader or someone like that a big bad, right? That's out there that, yeah, yeah that yeah. you know, like your your characters will may never really see Darth Vader unless they get to a certain point where they're you know causing too big of a clamor or whatever. But you know that well, big bad thread of Darth Vader out there, or or his, and not just not just. Um, I mean, Darth Vader is the big bad threat, and then what you see is his like Imperial Inquisitors showing up. Right. At places, right? There's the right. influence of the localized manifestation of the big threat. And, and that's why if you play in the era where, where, where Vader is still walking around and the Emperor is still walking around, that you don't want to become too noticeable because as you, if you're a Force user and you gain the power that you seek to be able to be a better Force user, you're also going to gain more dangerous enemies. And before you know it, you're going to be staring down the the red lightsaber of the black armor and the, the stats that FFG and every other company that have made for that guy make him really, really dangerous. You actually don't want to deal with him on the board because he will hurt you over and over and over again. So there's that. Sorry, we went down the Star Wars rat hole. I'll get no, I think that's okay. I, let me yeah, let me take ahead, a please. minute here and expand this outside of RPGs, right? Yep. I think it's easy in RPGs to have it because in our RPGs typically, or tabletop RPGs or any RPGs, they typically have a setting that you play in that's a persistent setting. Yeah. Um, board games, I think, also have uh, this uh, threat over can have this threat over them too. And right, obviously, we're not talking about. You know, we're not talking about Candyland or anything like that, but uh, the concept of um, uh, that there is something there. Uh, Arkham Horror is a great example, right? It's in Arkham Horror. There's something that's driving the players to actually try to buff themselves up, to get items, to play through the game. Uh, you know, there's the myth, the mythos phase itself. There's always going to be something, a card you're drawing at the end that's going to make it even harder for you to continue to meet your objective in the game. No matter what you do, that mythos phase is always coming, and you're always going to draw that card. There's, mm -hmm. you know, uh, another example is Castle Ravenloft, uh, a 2010 um, board game. The Strahd himself is somewhere mixed into the monster deck, right? Like there is always an opportunity that he could pop early in that game. Mm -hmm. So you're always trying, you always kind of have that on the brain. You have that on the mind that I've got to, I can't just be willy nilly around the board and taking my sweet time. I've got to be prepping myself for what could come. There's that concept of threat I think it can, or the imminent threat is, or the ever existing threat isn't just tied to role playing games. Well, uh, yes, and I think if you are thinking like, okay, how do I incorporate this into um, my game? How, like, if I'm writing a homebrew, how, like, how do I do this? I think a a great place to look at is like movies and films. 
because a lot of times there's, especially when you get into sequels, there's a, a bigger, broader threat that's there that kind of keeps the movies sort of uh, linked together. Uh, you see this in Alien, which is funny because you think that the threat, uh, the the um, ever-present threat is the xenomorphs. It's actually not. It's the corporations. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Like, they're the ever-present threat there. You know? Uh, you look at uh, Indiana Jones, it's the Nazis, right? And Adolf Hitler and all that stuff. Um, you know, you look at uh, Terminator and Skynet is the ever-present threat. But you just deal with the manifestations of that ever-present threat that's far in the future, right? Skynet, Skynet's far in the future. You're dealing with that ever-present threat by having to deal with Terminators that have been sent in the past. So um, it's like, how do we defeat Skynet? Okay, well, like, we have to go do these things, but there's a Terminator on our way, right, that was sent by Skynet. So you can see how the ever-present threat really flavors the direct action sequences or, or conflicts that happen in the game, even though the players don't touch on that directly. Yeah, I think Friday the 13th. Um or uh, you know any of the Jason Voorhees movies are an example, right? He's this otherworldly thing, and slasher's a little bit more of a fun, you know, thing than a thriller necessarily. But if you ever played the old NES uh, game, Friday the Thirteenth game, boy, that game had uh, an ever-present threat. At any moment in time, Jason could just show up on your side scroller and chase you. And yeah. <laughs> Uh, but man, and that was a tough game too. Oh, that was a really tough game. game. Jason would show up and you're like, I'm dead. That's it. That's it. Game over. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, so yeah, I think it's an important point that, you know, it's in movies, it's in, uh, role-playing games and board games. It's probably in our real lives. (laughs) There's, you know, at various phases of our lives, there's an ever present threat that's driving us towards some sort of conflict with the world around us. It's just a reality, but you know, that's part of, that's part of we escape into games into a fantasy setting, but we still deal with a lot of the things that we deal with in the real world, just in a setting where we can have a little bit more maybe empowerment and choices around it. So, um, not we, to get deep. No, I, I mean, I think that's great. What, one of the things that uh, we're sort of drawing some source material from is an article that was written back in 2019, and um, it's uh, from the Improved Initiative blog. And um, they gave some examples of like, wh- like what works well. But I, th- what I thought was interesting is what happens when you don't have the ever-present threat in your game. And they talked about in this blog, uh, Vampire the Masquerade, and how in in Vampire, the problem that they had is that there was no overarching like you got to save the world you got to prevent the world from being destroyed type of thing you know and and because of that uh it was hard to get all of the player characters on the same page because all the player characters had their own goals their own ambitions their own backstories that were leading them in different directions, but there was nothing to unite them to get them kind of all rowing in the same direction and feeling like part of a team. They're just all very individualized. So yeah, I think this yeah. is I think this is a good example, but I think it's a little contrived because it might be. I know, never played Vampire, so I don't I don't know. I did. Well, it, yeah. Oh go ahead. 
ahead, I was Jay, just going to say, I think it's an example, you know, the, it's an example of um, maybe the setting itself didn't have the threat, but, you know, an appropriately, uh, an appropriately contrived um, uh, campaign in that setting absolutely could uh, there, you know, you could have a vampiric council that is causing problems um, across, you know, the land and Maybe there, you know, there's a blood tax, and you're, you know, it's just keeping you down on your knees. Or there's, you know, vampire hunters guilds. Like, there's all sorts of things yeah. you could do to have it. I think the the what the article was trying to do was show that the setting itself uh, did not provide a large scale threat that affected everybody who played inside that setting versus right. um, some of the other things that that uh, the the some of the other systems that. Uh, uh, they came up with later. So well, and if you sorry, uh, just real quickly, Dan, if you if you look at the games that we talked about that have this Shadow of the Demon Lord, Call of Cthulhu, right? Like those are baked into the setting. The ever present threat is baked into the setting of that game. So um, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, it, this might feel a little contrived um, with Vampire, but I think his point still stands in that the ever present threat should kind of be part of your world building a little bit so that you know when you're writing adventures inside of it like it's already baked in there like you already know the flavor of of the world that you're in yeah but world building doesn't have to be defined by the core system setting so as the all right let's did you, did you ever did you ever play <laughs> did you ever play vampire j uh, i didn't play this version that he's referring oh, to yeah the masquerade the, because I, I come from that era of gaming where we tried everything that was new, mm, yeah. even some stinkers that have, that are on the ash heap of history. Well, you know, so, I did play a one-shot of it years ago. Right. And and so uh, there's a, a different conceit with the White Wolf games than your average RPG. Let me explain to you. So if you're playing Cthulhu, um, you, are, you play a normal kind of person... Even if you're a gangster and you're slowly going down the rabbit hole into the descent of how weird the world is. That's the conceit, right? If you're playing um, D&D, the GM basically says, here's our problem of the week. Let's go fight it or let's go on. Let's go roll random encounters. For, for White Wolf Games, it demanded the player really get into the lore and so there's a fabric, uh, there's a basis of understanding so that when the GM starts pulling threads of what's going on in the story, the players understand which threads are getting pulled and why that matters. They did the same thing with Werewolf and all the other ones where they really asked everybody, the, 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 you, everybody wanted to get a copy of the main book. You needed it not to make a character and figure out how to min-max. Nobody really cared about that as much. It was, okay, well, I want to be this kind of vampire. What does that mean? And what does this lineage mean? And what does this faction mean? And, and that was part of what the conceit of the game required. And so if you were going to set up, to Jay's point, if you were going to set up an ever-present threat, it required everybody to kind of like opt into at least get, get on board with the lore. And right. then the GM can do their work. Because mm -hmm. it, sometimes you would play those games without doing that, and the GM had to basically spend a lot of time storytelling and getting everybody up to speed. Yeah, I, I mean, I take your point a lot, Jason, which is that the, D, the 
GM can create their own ever-present threat. And in fact, um, I was thinking about Star Wars and, you know, the Empire being the ever-present threat. But, man, if you're playing in the Outer Rim, all of a sudden, like, the Huts are the closer mm, ever-present threat in that moment. You know, like, the Empire still may be out there as the bigger, badder thing, but it doesn't matter because you're closer to the Huts being the you know, the, the bigger threat in the moment. So I think you can always change it. I just, I just feel like if you are going to write an RPG system and setting and, and really sell it as like a package kind of thing, um, rather than just like a rule set, I think that you should have a ever present threat in there as part of the lore of your setting. Um, just because that gives a lot of direction for, your world you know um i yeah i I, we might um it's not that it's not that some systems here let me start it this way some systems are very setting focused yes um other systems are more um more themed with a mechanical base that allows you to create a setting inside that theme. I think Mothership is a good example of that. Okay. Uh, there's not one specific setting in Mothership. Like, not every right. every Mothership module you've played, they're not all tied together. Like, you couldn't point and say, well, that spaceship from the, that spa- the derelict ship that we did in that adventure must be over right. in that quadrant. They're not, it's not necessarily one continuous setting. But there's a theme that is consistent across all of the Mothership content. And there's a mechanic-based system in there. The, each module, which plays as really its own thing, and that doesn't mean it's a one-shot. It just means it is a module that I, you know you can make several one-shots from or you could do a, a full campaign in if you wanted in Mothership. Each module creates, it creates an ever-present threat that is a part of, the, part of the implementation of the theme of Mothership in the setting that module created that the players then play inside of while they play that module. So I guess that that's an example of maybe a game system that I think can focus more on theme and give the freedom of establishing setting to the GM. So, here's here's a little bit of a hot take. I don't think I don't think Mothership has an ever-present threat. Okay, so it, I think the they theme. have an ever-present theme, but I don't know if that's the same as an ever-present threat. Right. So, so uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I would, I would argue a difference, right? So okay. as an example, the um, the mothership module, uh, a pound of flesh, yep, takes place on Prospero's dream. It's okay. a station, right? Yep. That station is slowly leaking oxygen, and you are trapped on that station. Okay. Inside of that module, the when you when you everyone sits down and says, guess what, guys, we're gonna play we're gonna play the campaign a pound of flesh. You now have an instant. Uh, That's true. Ever-present okay. threat, which is you will run out of oxygen yeah. at some point on this station. Yep. So that's just – and that's just one little example. Okay, I agree. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I, you know, I was just thinking there's no, like, Sauron – of mothership, well, I don't think there has right? to be. It's just, like you said, it's just something that causes conflict. It's tr- it's true. It's true. And yeah. like I'm kind of going back on my words a little bit right there. So that's no, a discussion. No, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. Like that, the idea of that is definitely an ever-present threat in the scenario. Um, I was just thinking that you know, from scenario to scenario, because they are all standalone 
adventures essentially right um there's nothing like behind it that is like a giant ever-present threat but that's also not mothership either right like mothership is all about these kind of one shots that you could loosely link together it's probably Um, my fault too because i always kill you guys in one shot (laughs) (laughs) you don't get a chance to actually experience the connections yes you you know yeah that's Um, the problem (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I played so, that at Gen Con. Yeah. This guy has a pile of characters. He's like, yeah, everybody take two. One's going to die. <laughs> Which is great. I mean, that's part of the fun of it all, honestly. You know, it's like these horrific deaths that you end up doing. And so, so you know, I mean, that's that's the system that Mothership is, right? And contrast that with probably the closest game that's out there to it, uh, the Alien RPG, um that has some very distinct ever-present threats Mm, that we talked about before right there's the corporations that are out there there's the xenomorphs that are wandering the universe there's you know a lot of stuff out there but that has a broader um thematic and um you know setting uh ever-present threat that mothership does not i would say mothership has scenario-based threats right yeah so uh, yeah, um, that's so true. it's interesting. You can go both ways, uh, which I think was what you were originally trying to say. Let me boil Jason. this down. The ever-present threat in a mothership game is the GM. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well said. So if you are trying to come up with like a homebrew, right? If you're trying to come up with something that you want to um, – you know, put in there like you're you're coming up with a new world, a new setting, a new scenario, something like that. Like, what's your? Oh, yeah, let's let's do it. Let's do it. This guys, I'm writing about a mine in northern Nevada. K, you know, uh, uh, Cthulhu style stuff, right? So weird supernatural things are happening. What do you think would be a good ever present threat that I could incorporate into that scenario? This is 1870s Northern Nevada Wild West mining town. So, a um, couple things that are environmental. Okay. Okay. Let's just yep. start with that. Darkness, closed space, lack of air, no easy escape. Now that doesn't. That's not yep. like a, a, a Sauron. We're not doing Sauron there. Right. But you start thinking about the psychological terror of going down into a mine. You take any one of those four things, put a ghost in it or put a demon on it. It's like, oh, this is a demon that's closing the space in on you worse. Or, oh, now everybody can't breathe and, or for some metaphysical reason. And right. you can just start, you could just, you know, turn everybody on a spit from a tension standpoint. I, I love that, Dan. I think the environmental, right? Uh, uh, Jason talked about it in his mothership example the air running out um an environmental threat that's just in the background right because if that's there you're still having to deal with the problems that are coming up right like maybe you run into a bunch of deranged miners maybe you have to um you know wade across this this sludge pool to get to something that's got its own issues there those are like local challenges that are sort of uh, representation again of the bigger threat which is this mine itself right the environmental part of the mine 
So that's really good. Then you have to ask the question, you know, the fundamental is, why did they stop mining here? What stopped them? They were financially motivated to go get a thing. And why did, how come they're not down there anymore? Um, and that can be kind of fun. I think that these can be tricky too. Uh, Out of the Abyss is a good example of trying to do that where the players are kind of trapped deep in in some area. Um, and Out of the Abyss started by trying, you know, um, it started by saying limited resources. And I think this is maybe a, a setting, maybe not setting, a mechanical theme inside of um, Dungeons and Dragons is uh, limited resources. Wizards have limited spells per day before they have to rest. Uh, well, I guess 5th edition put cantrips in, but anyways, uh, kind of substantial spells. Um, you know, if you are a hardcore player, you have a limited number of arrows that you can knock. Um, mm -hmm. Those kinds of things. But I tell you, a fun, when we played Out of the Abyss, I thought, when I read that campaign and started, I thought, oh, this is interesting. They're going to have to actually, you know, forge for food to try to give a sense of really like i'm trapped in this area that's that's not helping me survive well one of the players was um had the spell uh, that could just create uh, fresh water like that was, you know that was four, me. yeah four gallons of fresh water a day and he was like oh okay, i'll just cast that once a day and then we'll all <laughs> fill our bags it's like all right Instantly, that threat was gone. Well, okay, right. what about food? Well, I'll just you know I'll just cast Heroes Feast once a day. Well, I'll eat. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, so environmentals are 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 good, but I think uh, I think you got to be careful because players are creative, and obviously that was kind of an easy way out the door there. But like um, you know, if you say like you're going to run out of fuel for your torches, or you know, the players will come up with some creative way to solve that problem, and then yeah. they'll overcome that threat. Yeah, which yep. is why you got to hit them three or four different angles. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. But then, that, but if you're hitting them with three or four different angles, does that threat really qualify as what we're talking about an here, which is an ever-present threat. threat? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if I was going to go down to a mine, not in a Call of Cthulhu universe, I'd be worried yeah. about darkness, running out of air, enclosed spaces. <laughs> Yeah, for right. sure. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, cave-ins and right. Like, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, it, that could be something. Maybe the mine is unstable from the beginning, and everyone right. knows and it's the, unstable. The un, right the, there, you go. My, my point. Maybe I didn't make my point as clear as I wanted to. You attach whatever the the mythic threat is to one of those other natural oh, threats, and they mm. compound each other. Just nice. like in uh, the latest Ghostbusters movie, where or the kid one, the kid Ghostbusters movie, where yep. like the town is always uh, having an earthquake every now and then. It's not just an you know it's it's this earthquake that like could make everybody's houses fall apart, but it's tied to you know spoiler the movie's old now uh, tied to um, uh, the ghost thing demon thing that's trying to escape right that's causing that uh, to happen so yeah. Maybe there. Maybe your mind is uh, it's unstable, and from the from the first episode, or from when they first step in there, you know the tunnel collapses, and now they're trapped in the mine. And like it, every every fifteen minutes, or maybe every thirty minutes, there's a chance for another cave in somewhere else in the mine. And right. It's tied to some eldritch being trying to rip, you know, or something. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. No, it's very good. Very good. Because they're um, not going to be able to fix that themselves. Like, you can't stop the mind from caving in. Right. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. All you can do is deal with the problems that present exactly. themselves, right? Um, and so, yeah, no, I think that's that's great. So, uh, Dan, I, I thought like you know you you've got the you've got a natural uh, GM instinct here. You're like, okay, well, you're talking mine. Like, go environmental, right? So, what if you're writing a, like a D and D adventure, or what if you're writing uh, you know something more sword and board style or or just even a generic sci-fi adventure what kind of ever-present threats do you guys would you think that uh, would be important in those ones um uh, first of all there's you don't have to go raid um tolkien or any of the other big you know fantasy ips out there i would say come up with something not necessarily whole cloth new, but adapt something from another genre that uh-huh. works great in the or, or interests you in a different genre. So, for instance, you know when when Jay was running Firefly for us, he was like he went straight to the westerns and used mm-hmm. those western plot lines, and and that worked out real well because it you know because Firefly is a western in space, but we didn't need to go to Asimov, right? So. Right. Um, you have to kind of break kind of the consistent tropes and expectations, right? You've got to do, you got to come up with something that's different and unique to you. And, and I would say draw inspiration from alternative sources of, of media um, and, 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 and mix and match. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Jason. I think you're about to say something. I was just going to say a very easy example, kind of like the Star Wars Empires. The Klingon Empire in Star Trek, right? It's there's this giant nebulous, you know, other alien or other presence out there that is domineering in a sci-fi setting yeah. that will always be able to potentially pop up in your arm of the galaxy and cause a problem you're gonna have to deal with immediately. Uh, the orcs in Warhammer, right? Like, yep. then if you see, you could be doing whatever you want, solving all your crime and thriller and suspense stuff on a planet, but all of a sudden if the klaxons go off and say there's an orc invasion fleet coming, everything else stops. You have to right. deal with that, right? <laughs> yeah, very true. Very true. Um, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about is that some of my favorite uh, video games take place when there's a conflict in the setting. And usually it's when two... Um, two civilizations collide a little bit and that provides some interesting kind of conflict and background so uh if you look at assassin's creed valhalla uh you know you had this norseman that was operating in england and so you had that kind of like norse versus you know anglo-saxon stuff that was, was happening there so because of that sort of merging of empires or merging of civilizations that was happening uh there was a swirl of conflict that always happened there right people either hated the danes or they hated the english or they Mm -hmm. hated the you know Mm -hmm. like yeah uh and and so that could that that conflict that background conflict that's happening could even function as an ever-present threat and i think that that goes to your earlier point jason which is sometimes the ever-present threat doesn't have to be evil right uh, you had this mixing of of societies, this mixing of civilizations, and that's not necessarily evil. It's just two peoples blending into each other. Now, 
there could be bad people, nefarious actors that are working mm, on both right. sides that you may have to deal with, right? But that background conflict that's happening there is providing a nice setting for interesting adventures because you have to do something about something sometimes, right? Yeah. So um, I think I think you could look to that. Like if I was writing a D and D adventure, it might be interesting to think like, okay, well. You know, there's these two kingdoms that are at war with each other, and you're not on either side. You're just sort of in the you're sort of just adventurers that are there. So, which side do you take? Like, are you on one side one day and one side the other day? Mm. How does that play into it? Like, do you meet good people on both sides? Do you meet bad people on both sides? And I think that that provides a nice ever-present threat, you know, quote-unquote threat in that in that scenario. Back on the video game that you, you know, I'm playing a game right now called 12 Minutes, uh-huh. which is a fun little puzzle game where uh, you play a husband. Uh, you get a husband and wife, get a small apartment, and you're trapped in a time loop that resets every, well, we'll say every 12 minutes, but um, it resets every 12 minutes. You're trying to solve this kind of murder mystery that happen- that uh, deals with what's inside your apartment. Every time you play, if you die, it resets to you entering the apartment. But you keep you keep your memories from the last time, you know, the, the last time loop. So as you play the game, the dialogues open up and you, you kind of unravel a puzzle so that you can do different things. The problem is at the five-minute mark, every time and every time at the five-minute mark, a cop knocks on your door. And it, it changes what you're able to do from that point forward because you now – you don't have time to do anything so every time every time the time loop resets you're like okay and then you start rushing i'm like rushing i'm going to grab the knife from the counter i'm grabbing the you know the pills from the medicine cabinet i'm doing everything as fast as i can because i know at that five minute mark in real time gameplay that cop is going to knock at that door and it's going to trigger a sequence and i got to try to explore and unravel more of the puzzle before that five minute mark hits so that's an example of you know, it's not necessarily some evil threat or something, but it's like a time mechanic right. that's causing right. this conflict with me and the game setting that's driving my initiative and driving my purpose for what I'm trying to accomplish. Yeah, we talked about uh, 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 time travel in one of our previous podcasts. And, I mean, an ever-present threat could be the Marty McFly conundrum, Right. I've got to get back to my home yeah. before I disappear. Your home's gone forever, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, <laughs> Depends, in, in the not in Derek universe, it, it's not. I know. I, in my time travel RPG, it was you're going to mess up your time travel coordinates, and um, space and time is going to rip your body to pieces. Ooh, and yeah. so you know that was always kind of like, do you guys really want? You guys can all time travel. Do you really want to? you fail this check it's gonna hurt in new ways yeah. so. as it should for messing with the natural order that's right <laughs> so what game I, was that i remember that that was a benjamin franklin time the, travel uh, that's right the league of uh benjamin benjamin franklin franklin's lead of uh rogue time travel renegade time travelers <laughs> yeah i remember you talking about that copyright yeah. trademark dan pomeroy 2022 that's right it's just been re uh <laughs> my just ip now. <laughs> that's my ip stay away yeah yeah so uh look i there's so many ever-present threats that you can do and i love the fact that we kind of touched on the idea that 
it doesn't always have to be like a demon lord coming through a, a rift in in the void, you know, or Sauron there. Like it could be so many other things. It can be environmental. It can be time. It can be um, you know clashing civilizations. It can it can be uh, it could be the police. Even it could be a future threat from Skynet. You know, I mean, like there's so many things that you can do, and just realize that like if you if you bake this into your scenarios, if you bake this into your settings that you have for the games, that it will provide a very rich and uh, a, a fertile ground for the seeds of new adventures. So um, hopefully this inspired you guys as much as it did me and, and hopefully Dan and Jason. And uh, if you like this episode, if you liked what you hear, hit us up on social media. Hit us up on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, jump into our Discord with us. Uh, talk with us for a little bit. That'd be great. We'd love to hear what you think about this. And we'd love to hear some of your ideas on what you would use for your ever-present threat. So thank you guys so much for listening. Um, we really appreciate the support that you give us. And uh, we'll see you next time. Keep the dice rolling. Thanks. <laughs>